Chapter 33 of Cordelia the Magnificent. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by John Brandon. Cordelia the Magnificent. Chapter 33 The Magnificence Cordelia Found. Cordelia's eyes remained upon the door for several moments after Gladys had gone. Her own feelings toward Gladys at that period she could not have analyzed. Dominating these personal feelings was an awed sense of what had happened to Gladys. Gladys had lied with her lips and her life. She had schemed. She had twisted this way. She had turned that way. She had used every trick her wit could command, all to serve her pride, her vanity, her supreme selfishness. And this was what all her lying and scheming and selfishness had brought her. They had lost her, Jerry Plimpton. They had lost her a husband who looked a fine, simple, sincere man. They had lost her her son, a darling, manly little fellow. They had brought on her the humiliation of this broken engagement. They were making public the long, hidden story of her marriage, with its details of her being ashamed of her husband because of her snobbery, her relief in her husband's reported death, because that death made it possible for her to keep the marriage secret, her hidden maternity and her adoption of her own son, her submitting to blackmail, her public denial of her son, and capping the vast edifice of chagrin built by her pride. This final fact, that everything had been quite regular and legal from the first, and that the years of her suffering from a supposed shame had been brought upon her solely because of her snobbishness and cowardice. All these, Cordelia, in this odd summary, foresaw, were things the world of Gladys would never forget. Nothing, Nothing that could possibly have happened to Gladys could have struck more truly the heart of her vanity than these things which had happened. Of all the things which she had once had and dreamed of having, Gladys had only one thing left, her money, only her money. While she thus thought, Cordelia had been conscious of voices in the room, but not of the words spoken. Now the words dimly registered upon her brain. They came from the city press man. It's a whale of a story. The papers won't be satisfied with city press dope on a story like this. I'll phone in to my office, and the office will flash a bulletin to all the papers, and in about ten minutes you'll have ten dozen reporters here. Might as well get ready for them. Cordelia was aware that the next moment the two newspaper men had gone, she was utterly dazed by what had happened, by what might be its meaning to her. Just then, she wanted nothing else quite so much as to be alone, to clear her brain, to think. She stood up and spoke to Mitchell. I want to thank you for all you've done for me, and that's all I can say now. She shook the hand he offered her, and she gripped Esther's hand and Grayson's, neither of whom spoke. If you don't mind, please, she went on, 
I'd like to be alone for a while. She passed into her little cubbyhole of an office, closed the door, sank into her chair and dropped her head in her folded arms upon the desk beside her typewriter. She sat there soundless, tremors running through her. She had not a single thought. Just then, thought was beyond her. Wild sensations dizzied through her. But they were as inarticulate, as formless, as impermanent, as are the swift, roaring phantasms of a person who is going into or coming out of ether. And for her just then, time was as much a nullity, a void, as it is to a person in ether, and its twilight stages. And in so far as she was conscious, consciousness was merely a series of hiatuses with brief instants when mind or soul seemed barely to touch a bit of reality and then flash away. She heard voices in the room she had left, many voices, and her subconsciousness from its vastly remote distance, told her that these were the voices of many reporters. And then, after a timeless interval, the voices were gone. No sound came from the next room. And then, after another timeless interval, her door seemed to open. A paper seemed to be laid before her. The door seemed to close. That remote subconsciousness dimly told her Mitchell had slipped in and then slipped out. An hour, perhaps several hours, may have passed. She pulled herself up out of her swirling emotional anesthesia and looked at the paper Mitchell had brought her. It was an afternoon paper, and in it was a hasty preliminary account of that morning's happenings. But there, printed in full, was Gladys's affidavit. Her brain began to clear, to function. Her heart leaped at that affidavit. Mitchell's work clearing her. She was cleared. The world might think her a fool. She herself thought she had been a fool. But the world could no longer think her consciously and willfully dishonest. At last the world would have to admit that she had been lied about, that in intention she had always been honest. She was glad that at last the world would acknowledge her honest. But aside from this, she seemed to care very little what the world thought of her. She pushed the paper from her, and her clearing brain began to go about in the groove of a circle her thoughts had worn a few months earlier, when she had begun slowly to re-win her self-respect, and had first begun to philosophize a bit, a circle whose course was determined by Gladys, Jackie, Aileen, herself. A circle whose circumference contained innumerable mates at Harcourt Hall, countless friends of society, smart, brilliant girls, all of them, but a circle whose high determining points were ever Gladys, Jackie, Aileen, herself. Gladys, Jackie, Aileen, herself. Herself, Aileen, Jackie, Gladys. Round and round in its groove went her mind. Yes, they had been a smart, brilliant lot, and today? Today the restless Jackie starting out to string herself a necklace of husbands, only no knot at the end of her string, and the latest bead slipping off as the newest is slipped on. And Aileen? Aileen living alone for pleasure, dancing her life away, 
turning all her splendid youth into nothing better than a smooth floor for her dancing feet. Just a decorated and decorative wanton, and Gladys, Gladys by her own selfish acts, bereft of all, shamed and laughed at, nothing left but her money, and herself, Cordelia? Why, she, she was dazed. Her breath was swept from her by the swift upward rush of her thoughts. Why, after all, she was making the best finish of the lot. She had found something real in life, something worthwhile. Of the four, she was the success. It was toward this concrete realization that her mind had been moving all that while it had been away from her, circling its remote ether. All the long while she had been sitting here in her little office, and as she lit upon this truth, she straightened up in her chair with a thrill and gazed with distant, bedazzled eyes at her wall three feet away. Of them all, she was the success. For she had found her real self, perhaps a small self, but such as it was, she had found it, and upon it she could build and keep on building. It would grow and keep on growing, build and grow until finally, from out of nowhere, that old haunting phrase flashed back upon her. Cordelia the Magnificent. How empty it sounded. She smiled at its pretension. And then she sobered, as an awning thought, related to that old title surged into her mind. Why, why? If there was any such thing as true magnificence, that magnificence which comes from discovering oneself, and keeping on being one's best self, and helping one's best self to grow, why her feet were now in the beginning of the one path that led to it. Cordelia the Magnificent. But oh, such a different kind of magnificence, so very, very different. But if she was anything now, and was ever to be anything more, Credit for it did not belong to her. Oh, but she had been lucky. For luck, that was all that had won for her. Saved her and let the others go. Luck, just luck. Luck? And why, why, of course, Mitchell. Mitchell. Gratitude, humility, joy inexpressible, swelled within her, kept on swelling, kept on swelling, and her distant eyes, fixed on her three-foot-away partition, grew more oddly bright with the miracle of it all. Presently Mitchell came in again and quietly sat down, the room's tiny size, forcing him to sit within a foot of her. Hours must have passed, she did not know. There is just one little last thing I have to tell you, he said quietly. My name, my last name, it's Harrison. Harrison, nobody at all. I told you long ago Mitchell was quite as good a name and quite as important. My only reason for not using my own name was, when I went to work as a butler, I thought another name might do as a butler just as well and I kept the name after my plans concerning Gladys began to take shape, because I feared if my real name were known, 
Through my real name, someone might trace down Billy Grayson, and the truth would come out before I was quite ready for it to come out. That's all there is to that. That's the last of my little mysteries. And now you know as much about me as I know about myself. She hardly heard this. He had been looking at her very steadily while he spoke. She had never before noted, so clearly as now, what fine, candid, sympathetic, understanding eyes he had. All the great feelings in her. She felt as though they were about... His quiet voice went on. But there was that look in those fine eyes that required no words. You will remember, you once said, if you were ever cleared, I might again ask. That was as far as she let him go. That gratitude, humility, joy, swelling in her, had now swelled to where nothing could confine them. They burst forth. You needn't ask, she cried. She flung her arms about his neck and held him tightly as one clutches joy and salvation. And her words went on, broken and choked with thrilled, ecstatic sobs. Oh, I'm so happy, so happy. And I haven't deserved it. I haven't deserved it. I haven't deserved it. I haven't deserved it. End of chapter 33